You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, it's turkey season all over the country right now, and if you're looking for a turkey shot that is just going to slam turkeys dead, you need to check out the Heavyweight TTS. Now, it comes in a variety of gauges, whether you shoot a 410, a 12 gauge, or a 20 gauge, this is the turkey shot for you. A lot of cool things going on with this. It has 22% denser material than a standard tungsten, uh, 56% denser than lead. So what this means is that at longer distances, you're getting higher velocities and a more consistent patterning. It has a full length wad that prevents direct contact off of the extra hard pellets and the bore. And long story short, that protects the barrel. If you want to find out more information about federal premium ammunition, visit federalpremium.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, I hope everybody is having a good day so far. Uh, just before I kick this podcast off, I wanted to make a couple quick mentions. I do have discount codes available if you guys are looking at either the Vector Custom Shafts, which I did a video on not too long ago uh, for arrows. I have a code DIY10 for that. Same code DIY10 for FOBs if that's something you're interested in. So the past couple of weeks, I had planned a couple of -of out-of-state trips for turkey hunting, which would be ideal because typically I wouldn't normally be hunting until mid-April, potentially even late April anyway, just because of how Wisconsin and Minnesota seasons are set up. Minnesota season actually opens on the 15th of April, and in Wisconsin, I've never been able to really draw a tag as a non-resident before the beginning of March, basically their sea season, which is really late April to early May. And... So I had planned on going down to Tennessee. Unfortunately, with the whole, you know, virus situation, I would have had to be flying down there. So flying from MSP to Nashville, uh, both of which were a little bit bigger hubs for the virus. Uh, I hung on to it basically as long as I could. And I didn't buy a, a tag just in case and decided, you know, kind of a week out that it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Uh, if I would have been driving, that would have been a different case. Uh, but driving all the way down there would have meant that I likely would have needed to take off another couple of days of PTO, which means less PTO in the fall for deer hunting. So there you go. That's kind of why I made the decision. I did not end up going down to Tennessee to, to hunt turkeys. And so then it was like, well, what I, what can I do again early April to kind of fill this void? South Dakota seemed like a pretty good option. Um, but really it just came down to their uh, weather. And for the weekend I could have gone and would have gone, I decided I'd would have rather just go uh, deer scouting again and just kind of stack the cards in the deck for 
uh, May hunting mostly and late April hunting for Minnesota, Wisconsin. And in that Minnesota season, since it is going to be opening up, I'm kind of on the fence whether or not I want to go out right away. I bought an archery tag for Minnesota. And I think I mentioned this before on the podcast, but the deal with Minnesota's archery seasons is that you have basically one tag that you can use statewide for the entire season to kill your one bird. And it's a one bird limit. Um, you know, I guess one, one Tom or one gobbler, one bearded bird. Whereas if you want to shoot that bird with a shotgun, the seasons are over the counter, but you have to choose one. So you can choose your A or your B and you have that one time period to be able to try and fill that tag for your one bearded bird. If you're unsuccessful, then you have a second opportunity during the very last season, which is season F and it's, you know, the last couple of weeks of May. So you basically have three total weeks, I guess you would say, to be able to fill that shotgun tag, but only one of those weeks is your actual planned week. So it makes it really um, advantageous in some regards to be able to choose that archery tag just because you literally have the whole season. If you got bad weather a certain week, you don't have to go out. You can wait till the weather's a little bit nicer. Um, you can go obviously anywhere in the state. I guess you can do that now with the shotgun tags too. You can go anywhere in the state with a couple exceptions. Some of the bigger public land areas, they have it segregated so that you would have to draw those during the first couple of weeks. Uh, but basically you're kind of stuck between, do I want really good flexibility and freedom for that season to be able to kill that bird with the archery tag? Or do I want the kind of, you know, more assuredness of being able to use a shotgun, but much uh, more limited time to be able to fill it and a little bit more uncertainty just in regards to hunting pressure and weather and that sort of thing. So kind of reluctantly, I went with the archery tag this year, which means I'll have plenty of time to fill that tag. Um, the weather is projected to be 17 degrees on opening morning, and we are just getting some snow uh, right now. So it seems like it never fails. We always get that one big April snowstorm right before the opening week. So no exceptions this year for sure. And I actually am going, I have a, a trip planned in Minnesota. Uh, if you guys remember video wise, a couple of years ago, I shot a bird on opening morning when there was a whole bunch of snow on the ground. That was a private land hunt that one of my buddies invited me out and uh, we hunted on some private land around him. And he gave another, extended another invite this year and basically um, allowed, he basically said we could have both myself and my wife, Sam, uh, come out and hunt with him. And so that would kind of be my main goal is to try and try and be able to give Sam a good, uh, turkey hunting first experience, you know, in, in some of that more agricultural type land, you can obviously see a lot further. So you're going to be able to see birds no matter what, uh, even if you, you can't bring them in, which I mean, hopefully we'll be able to do, but point being, she has a good chance to be able to get a first, a good first turkey hunt, as opposed to kind of running a gun in the public land around here, which especially the first couple of weeks are just going to be, I would imagine packed with hunters, but the new license changes, I would expect that the A and B seasons probably will have more pressure than they've had in the past. That's just kind of my expectation. So I'd like to get her a really good first hunt. <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> excuse me, while we're out there, I'll obviously have the bow and we'll uh, try and maybe fill my tag too and get some good video footage of everything. That's not to say I won't go out on the public land locally before that happens. Um, well, I guess I'll just play it by ear. But the other options that I would have is if I want that to be the kind of the first turkey hunting in Minnesota, I might just spend some additional time and do some more deer scouting in Wisconsin or Minnesota, uh, basically those two states. 
I bought a South Dakota tag too, so I could make a trip out to South Dakota and do some scouting. I've been doing some uh, waypoint um, <clears throat> selection already on Onyx, so I already have a pretty good idea of where I want to go. Same thing with North Dakota. We obviously, I, I left a couple um, cameras out to be able to monitor the area throughout the fall since last year in North Dakota. We basically only had a couple days that we were there. So I'd like to be able to go back and check those as well as do some additional scouting, kind of learn that terrain and that habitat a little bit better. So there's a lot of options yet for deer that we could still do this year. And now is kind of the time to do them with not much of that vegetation really growing up yet. So we'll see how it goes. But my guess is that I'll probably do some additional scouting and then kind of transition into turkey hunting a little bit more, you know, easing into it this year. So with that, I wanted to kind of jump into the meat of this podcast, which I want to be talking about access and more specifically kind of creative access and what good or bad access options are, both in terms of what things you can do in terms of equipment or, you know, tooling to be able to get you into the woods, but also just kind of overall strategy and, and the why more so than necessarily the how. And what kind of sparked this, this topic was the last time I was out in the woods doing some deer scouting, <clears throat> I went into an area where it, it's kind of big woods, I guess you could call it. It's, it's tough to really label it cause it's kind of big woods. It's kind of swamp, but it's definitely not hill country. I wouldn't say there's some rolling hills, uh, but it's kind of your, your typical Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin type of terrain. And so typically in the past, when I have hunted or scouted this area, and I've probably done more scouting there than I have hunting, I've accessed from land-based access. So park at a parking lot, park on the side of the road, and then just kind of cut in and and work your way in. But there is some very appealing access from water in, in terms of small creeks and things like that in this particular area. And so what I tried a couple times already this year was kayaking in. The first time I kayaked in, I went from basically the downstream most area of this particular piece of land where the river was the biggest and the deepest and uh, also the fastest moving and basically just paddled upstream about, you know, a mile and three quarters to get to the spot we wanted to get out and scout. Uh, Sam came along with me and, you know, basically she was, she said, you know, if we want to do this again, we should try and figure out a motorized way to get up there. Cause you know, a mile and three quarters upstream paddling is not the most fun in the world. And it takes a while and it feels like you're barely moving that entire time. So the next time I went out, it was just me. And I went from the other end of the property and I <clears throat> basically dropped my kayak in and the stream was much, much narrower, much, much shallower here. And not only that, but it was basically you know, closed in on both sides with, um, you know, it was tag owlers and, and willows basically. And they were overhanging. So you basically had this almost like a tunnel that you were going through and the river was shallow enough and narrow enough in a lot of spots that basically for the first 400 yards, I was forced to pretty much get out with my hip boots and just walk down the Creek bed and, you know, carry the kayak behind me. And after about a quarter mile, I was able to finally get into the kayak and then start paddling. And even for the next couple hundred yards, it was, you know, just as much pushing off of the shore with the paddle as it was actually, you know, paddling in the water, just because of how small that Creek was at that point. So you can definitely, you know, kind of tell from that description that from one access versus the other, there was a very drastic difference in terms of what kind of the pros and cons were there. On one end, if you access from the downstream side, 
you got a pretty tough paddle in, in terms of your uh, actual effort, but in terms of the, you know, kind of openness, it makes it, you know, a little bit more easy and there's, you were able to stay in the, the kayak the whole time. And then if you were on say a hunt, the advantage of coming in from that way is that if you were to tag out, or even if you don't tag out the way back out is much easier because you're able to use that current to your advantage and probably gain an extra two miles an hour on that way back compared to going upstream. Whereas that other access option, if you were hunting closer to that, you know, upstream access, then obviously the way in, it's going to be a lot shorter distance. The downside of course, in this particular scenario was that it was more work just physically because you had to get in the kayak out of the kayak. You had to drag the kayak over deadfall and, um, you know, kind of weave your way through some of those willows and tag allers. So, and I actually had to, you know, drag it over a beaver dam at one point also, uh, with about an 18 inch drop in water elevation. So that wasn't super ideal either, but what it allowed me to do is basically get into an area that was, uh, that backed up to some private land and was in a really good area of the swamp. And I was able to basically get out of the kayak and find trails crossing that Creek that were just pounded into the mud. And I did end up hanging a cell camera there and already over the first couple of days that it's been out, uh, picture just about every day, starting to get some, you know, doe groups as well as bucks that you, I've even, uh, saw some, some velvet nubs already on one of them. So <clears throat> it seemed like there's definitely some big advantage to water access, but it still is not nearly ideal from the standpoint of, I, I either got to do a, a ton of work on the front end, uh, to be able to basically drag the kayak or I'm coming up from the downstream and having a super long paddle upstream to be able to get to where, uh, I wanted to be. So on the, the topic of water-based access, I obviously just talked about a kayak, but that's not the only access option that you have, right? You could also use a canoe. If the water's shallow enough, you could just walk the Creek or you could use something like a flat bottom boat with a small motor. So let's kind of break down each one of these options because I likely am going to be upgrading. I'm going to sell the kayak I have right now, probably sell my wife's kayak too, and we're going to get something new. So I'll talk about that in just a second, but First, let's break down the pros and cons to each of these three options I just mentioned. Kayak, you got either sit on top or the sit-in varieties. And it seems like for hunting and fishing type activities, the sit on top tend to be more popular. They tend to be pretty stable because they're wide. They tend to be able to allow you to carry a lot more gear because you can just kind of load it on top of the deck. And oftentimes you'll see raised seats that give you a little bit better vantage point. So there's a lot of advantages to a sit on top kayak, I believe for hunting and fishing, some of the downsides and where maybe a sit in kayak would be a little bit easier to tend to be a little bit easier to navigate on. They also tend to have a little bit better secondary stability, uh, which is, uh, basically the amount of tipping that you'd have to do to actually flip the thing. Whereas the sit or the, yeah, the sit on top kayaks tend to have better primary stability, uh, which basically means you can, you know, stand up on them a lot of times, um, and you can kind of rock back and forth and it feels like it's pretty good. But once you get past that little bit of primary, they're going to go over, uh, pretty easily. Um, so what I have right now is sit in, so is my wife. And even though they're good for paddling long distances, like if we go up to the boundary waters or, you know, even doing that one and three quarter, uh, mile access upstream, you know, it's probably one of the better options that you could have. It would be a lot easier to do that kind of paddling versus the sit on top, but I would say, generally speaking, the sit on top is going to be a little bit better option because you get a little bit higher vantage point. 
you're able to stand on it a little bit more securely, which means that if you don't have a great exit point or entry point, then you're definitely going to be better off with that good primary stability so you can step off of the kayak and onto the land um, and you can carry more gear. You know, some of these things have weight capacities of, you know, four or five, 600 pounds. And they have a lot of times uh, square sterns. So you can put on an electric motor. You can put on maybe a little two and a half horsepower motor. Um, the one that I'm interested in right now and, and kind of looking at, and a couple of my friends have the same kayak as that new canoe frontier 12, uh, pretty close to being able to actually order one of those. And that would replace the uh, kayak that I have right now. And one of the upsides of that particular model would be it's got a lot um, greater weight capacity. So I'd be able to drag out a deer on the kayak whole body versus having to kind of quarter it out and put the game bags in dry storage, you know, in the, the cockpit itself. And then, you know, kind of lashing whatever else to the top of the kayak. And I can add a second seat. So my wife and I could basically get in that same kayak and both go on a hunt the same day. And then the greater primary stability is also nice. And the fact that I can easily add a motor to the stern, either a little two and a half horse outboard or an electric motor with a battery up in the front. So definitely looking forward to placing an order for that, trying it out and providing an update. Um, let's now shift over to the canoe side of things. I guess actually before I do that, one more pro and con of the sit on top versus the sit in. Oftentimes the sit in kayaks, um, you'll find those that a little bit lighter weight, like my wife's kayak, I think is about 30 pounds. Mine is closer to 50, but if you have to walk it down to the water, if you don't have like a good launch or something, um, if you have to get that thing over some kind of gnarly access to be able to carry it in, then you might be a little bit better off with a lighter weight, more easily to handle sit in kayak versus some of the sit on tops that can be, you know, 70, 80, even heavier in terms of their weight. Okay. Back to the canoe canoe, huge advantage, weight capacity and storage, uh, you know, much better than even the sit on top kayaks. You can really load those canoes up. And there's a reason why the canoes are definitely the, usually the uh, most chosen me means of travel for places like the boundary waters where you might have two, three guys going up and they're bringing a lot of camping gear and fishing gear and all that kind of stuff. If you have a canoe, there's no problem to have you know, one or two guys in it and be able to throw all your gear and be able to drag out a deer. Also the downside of the canoe, of course, is that especially if you get a longer one, if you got a lot of winding turns in a Creek, it's going to be a little bit harder to steer that thing, especially if you're solo than it would be say a shorter kayak. Um, one of the other downsides to that canoe is that it, again, unless you have a square stern one, it's going to be a little bit harder to mount a motor than it would be with a um, some of those kayak options, oftentimes their primary stability is not going to be maybe as great as say a sit on top kayak, but the secondary stability, you know, similar to a sitting kayak is going to be a little bit better. So it's going to be harder to fully tip them over, but they're going to feel rocky as you, you know, if you try to stand up in one, for example. So if you don't have a lot of tight turns to make, um, and even if you have a square stern route, where you can throw a motor on, or if you don't plan on using a motor at all, a canoe can be a great option. Uh, canoe can be also a really great option if you have to, again, take some kind of a portage or more of a rough access to get down to the water because you can get ca canoes uh, that are much lighter weight typically than kayaks. You can get an 18 foot canoe that weighs, you know, just over 40 pounds and you can carry it over your shoulders very easily, which, 
you know, typically with kayaks, there's not really a great way to carry them. You know, you could have a, a side handle that you're carrying the thing with, but typically those side handles, at least for me, it always seems like you're kind of dragging on the ground and you have to kind of, you know, do a shoulder shrug to keep that thing off the ground. So it's not the most ergonomically advantageous way to carry a boat. Uh, you can use uh, little rolling carts and things like that to attach to them. But again, if you're going over, you know, logs and, and things like that, they might not be the best option either. Whereas a canoe, you can throw that thing right on your shoulders, uh, wear a pack and just walk that thing wherever you need to walk. So downside to a canoe, if you're going with a lightweight one, it's going to be price. You know, you could easily pay upwards of 1500 maybe even $2,000 on one of those canoes. Another downside to the canoes is, is since they tend to be longer, when you're getting those things to the water with your vehicle, it might mean that you have to use some kind of a rooftop rack to be able to carry that thing. And if you're driving long distances, then of course you got, you know, worse gas mileage, a lot of air resistance on top. You got to be careful about, you know, driving under things. You obviously wouldn't be able to go through like a drive-through, for example, if they got the, uh, the maximum height. Um, so those are things to definitely keep in mind with a canoe. You might be able to stick it in the back of your truck, but depending on how long it is, it might not be as good of an option as using a, a rooftop carrying system. Whereas with the kayaks, uh, if you're going with, you know, a 10, 11 foot kayak or something like that, you can throw that in the bed of a six and a half foot bed truck and just, you know, throw a little red flag on the back and, and close the tonneau cover and you're, you're still good. You don't have to worry about any of that additional air resistance on top of your vehicle. Uh, it's real nice and easy to get that boat out of the back of the bed of the truck and throw it down the water. So there's definitely pros and cons to the canoe. Uh, but if you're in an area where you're going across, say, a large lake or something like that, it was paddle-only access. Again, the example I used before, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, that's like the prime example of a place that is really well-suited for uh, being able to use a canoe. It might be worth it for you. Whereas the place I was describing where I went last weekend, definitely not a great place for a canoe. There's way too many tight winding turns. So you're much better off with something that you can, uh, especially as a solo person, be able to steer much more tightly, which is generally going to be a little bit shorter length in a kayak. The last option would be the boat, like a little flat bottom, something like that, 12 foot, 14 foot aluminum John boat, throw a little, you know, five horse motor on the back. Obviously a really great option. If you're going a long distance, if you have bigger water that you're trying to get over, you might have a little bit more chop. Let's say you got, you know, a few hundred acre lake that you're trying to get across, or you got a little bit bigger river system then that's definitely an opportunity where it makes more sense to go with an actual boat. The weight capacity and the storage of those are obviously going to be much greater than either the canoe or the kayak. So if you have a place where that could work for you, then that's definitely going to be the best option. Downside of course would be noise if you're using a, an outboard motor, but if you're going with that kind of an option, it's probably not your biggest consideration. There's a couple places where you know, we have rivers close by and just looking at where the boat launches are, I would need to go say three, four, even five miles to get to some of these spots along the river where you got public access along the river, but not necessarily up by the roads. So you'd have to access and be able to travel those three, four, five miles. And there's no way I'm going to be able to take a kayak or even a canoe that much distance. 
sure I could, but why would I want to, especially if I had like an electric trolling motor or something along those lines, um, there's potential for bigger chop with some bigger boats. It just makes more sense in that type of scenario to use an outboard. I can get up, you know, 10, 11 miles an hour, uh, so low, especially if I have a, a battery weighing down the front end and I can cover that distance a lot more effectively and a lot more efficiently. And then if I am successful, I have all the you know storage in the world to be able to throw a deer in the front of that boat. I've seen some people use those inflatable Zodiac type boats again with a little outboard on the back and same type of deal with that. Uh, it seems like it makes sense for certain scenarios, but the use case for me would be similar to when I would use a little flat bottom John boat. Now propulsion, if you have to paddle, then obviously that's what you're going to do. If you have the option to use a motor, you have electric motors, you have gas outboards, and you even have propane outboards. And so <clears throat> the huge advantage of the electric motor is silence and the fact that it just overall they tend to be less finicky right it's just an electric hookup you hook up the battery uh, to the motor as long as you got juice those things you don't have to start it up you don't have to worry about carburetors or chokes anything like that it just it just works it's nice and simple it's easy it's quiet the downside of course is that the battery depending on how much juice you need is going to be pretty heavy and the other downside is that you're topped out really on your speed. Even with something small and lightweight like a kayak, you're oftentimes still only going, you know, three, four, five miles an hour at maximum speed, even if you have a, a higher pound of thrust trolling motor. Um, the reason for that has to do with just kind of the RPMs that they're designed to operate at, the way the prop's designed. And so you have to kind of keep that into consideration if you need to travel longer distances. You might be in one of those scenarios where if you're going five miles, it might not make sense at all to use an electric motor. Whereas if you got maybe three quarters or a mile and a half, you might be willing to take on that, you know, three mile an hour or four mile an hour top speed just for the advantage of the stealthiness that it can provide. And with outboards between the gas and the propane, I've used the gas. I haven't used the propane, but it, it seems to be that the propane outboards, at least of right now, tend to have more uh, customer service type complaints more issues than do the small little outboards. Um, and again, you probably find guys that have had great experiences with like the little, uh, Tohatsu or the little layer propane outboards. But every time you go and search them, you tend to find a lot of people that have had really just awful experiences with them. With the gas outboards, the one that I have right now is a little six horse, old Johnson T horse, 1966, two stroke. It has a, you know, just a fuel line going to as big of a gas tank as I want in that John boat. And I can get up to, you know, 11, 12 miles an hour when I'm going wide open on the throttle. And I have some good counterbalance weight up front. Usually a trolling motor battery serves that purpose just fine. But the downside of that is that number one, it's really loud. That's, those two stroke engines are, are quite noisy. You have to deal with fuel, oil mixing. You got the, so there's some scent issues. And if I weren't trailering a boat, one of the more advantageous options would be some of the smaller outboards that are intended to be more portable. They make a little two and a half horsepower, little five horsepower motors that have integrated gas tanks. So you don't have to have a separate fuel canister with a line that goes right into your engine. You can actually just fill up the, uh, the top of the motor into that, you know, integrated fuel reserve and be able to run it that way. And then when you do run out, then you have, you know, a separate gas, um, uh, can that isn't hooked up with a line, but you know, similar to how you'd fill up like a lawnmower or something like that. You'd unscrew the top, go ahead and pour that fuel in the top, and then you can keep on going. 
makes a lot of sense for some of those, you know, moderate length trips. Um, but it also makes the most sense too, when you have to store the motor separately from the boat. Like, let's say you don't have a trailer where you can just have that motor always hooked up. Let's say you got a, st a square stern, a canoe or a kayak, or let's say for instance, you have a smaller flat bottom boat that you don't have a trailer for, and you just got it shoved in the back of your truck. And then you have to have the motor on separate. And then you basically carry the boat down to the water and then go ahead and grab that outboard, walk it down to the water. So almost little two and a half horsepower motors only weigh like 29, 30 pounds, which is much less than a full size trolling motor battery. So I guess to summarize, if you're in small winding creeks, kayaks make a lot of sense. If you want to be stealthy, an electric motor propulsion is probably going to be the best bet. If you're in more open water, then maybe a canoe makes more sense. If you don't have to have the, you know, the tight steering capabilities and you want to be able to carry a large amount of gear, square stern makes sense. If you have the ability to attach a motor and if you got really big water and need to go a long ways, then a small boat makes a lot of sense. And in terms of your motor, a small little portable four stroke engine that has a fuel canister integrated makes a lot of sense for some of those uh, opportunities where you might not be able to just trailer a boat right down to a launch. Whereas if you're able to trailer it, then, it, you know, you can do whatever you want, basically. So enough of the how, and let's talk about the why. When it makes the most sense to utilize a water type access like this would be when it gives you some kind of an advantage that a lot of other people aren't taking advantage of. For example, if you have an area that's very like the one that I described earlier in the podcast, where you have a small winding creek going through a swamp and kind of a big woods type habitat, not too many people are going to be using that creek for access for deer hunting. At least there might be some guys that use it for duck hunting or, or trapping or whatever, but a lot of the guys that are deer hunting are going to be accessing from the high ground. So you can use that to your advantage, especially on a morning hunt where you can come in from the backside and be able to hunt in some of that bedding cover that backs up to that creek. And you can get in there nice, easy, scent free before those deer come back in the morning and be set up totally out of sight, out of mind. And you don't have your scent going all over the uh, trails that those deer are taking back to their beds. So definitely a great option there. Now let's pick another example. Let's say you're hunting some kind of a, a bigger river bluff type area where you have a little bit bigger river and you got big hills and bluffs on both sides of the river. Well, a lot of the access for other hunters is going to be again from the high ground. And so if you're able to get accessing in from the water and you kind of dock your boat up in the bottom of some of those hills, then you can climb up the ravines, uh, especially on a morning hunt, or let's say you're doing a rut hunt and you just climb up that ravine and set up on the, the top edge and a crossing trail, uh, one of those steep cuts, then you've got minimal scent in that area. You're able to access from an area that deer aren't used to people accessing from. And if you do happen to shoot a deer and it runs down, you know, the side of the hill toward the water edge, then you're going to have a much easier drag out getting that thing back to the boat than you would if you had to carry the thing all the way back uphill. So let's transition over to land-based access. Now, there's not as many tools of the trade like there are for water access, so it's going to be less about the how and more about the why. Some tools that I have found to be somewhat useful, obviously if you got some kind of water not boat water, but like swamp type water, then hip boots, maybe even waders are going to be essentials. Uh, also the, the mudders that I've bought in the past, they tend to not be super great when you have to walk through a lot of grass or just, you know, general thick areas, just from the standpoint that they are really big and bulky. 
You know, it feels like you're walking around with duck feet, but where they do really excel is when you have really just soupy, mucky type bottom where if you were just wearing normal boots, just about every step you'd be, you know, leaning over and trying to pull your boot back out and um, not have it just slide right off. That's kind of where those things excel. So there's, you know, I guess a time when they work, but then there's also a time when they're not worth the extra effort. And most of it is just based on how thick the area is and how mucky that actual soil is that you're trying to step into. Apart from that, there really isn't a whole, a whole list of, you know, big tools for the trade for land access. It's more about being smart about your access. Now, wind and pressure for me anyway, would be kind of the primary factors that I would look at in determining how I want to access a particular area. Obviously you want to try and stay as undetected as possible from the scent aspect of your access. And also you have to take pressure into consideration because the more pressure you have, and especially the more predictable that pressure is, the more likely you're going to have deer, especially even some of the more mature deer using bedding areas that, you know, somehow overlook or are able to keep tabs on other people. Uh, there was a state park that I used to hunt in Wisconsin that had a, you know, a walking trail, a hiking trail that people would just, you know, normally take in. And there was, uh, a walking above these, these hiking trails, several beds that were in such an area where daytime thermals would basically carry that scent right up to those beds from those walking trails. So those deer were able to basically sit up in those beds and be totally comfortable and totally aware of all that activity that was going on, you know, basically beneath them. So for morning access specifically in hill type country, you could have falling thermals, especially if there's not any strong nighttime winds. And so it oftentimes makes sense to access from the bottom, you know, up through the ravines, if you are able to do so, you know, a lot of times it seems like you might only have access on say a high side or a low side for hill country. Um, and some of those areas where you have low access, you might have deer that are up high, uh, in their normal beds. And you just have to kind of keep an eye on making sure that let's say, for example, they're feeding up high or you think they are, and they're not feeding down in the bottoms. So if you're going to use some of that, uh, bottom access in the morning, if you only have topside access, it can make it a little bit more difficult, uh, to actually, to be able to do that. And it might be one of those scenarios where you just, you don't hunt that area in the morning or maybe there's like a Creek or something you can access through to get to a bottom type access. Um, and again, that would allow you to, especially if those deer are feeding up high and coming back to those uh, bedding areas along the points and things like that, kind of loop in around from the backside and be able to stay out of uh, sight, out of mind until those deer are coming back uh, to their bedding areas in uh, marsh type areas in the morning. It's most ideal to be able to obviously loop in around the backside, so to speak, and get into, uh, some of those bedding areas or into areas that are near those bedding areas without actually going through the food areas themselves or the trails that the deer used to take to those areas. And oftentimes you'll find, at least it seems like my experiences in these marsh type areas, you have parking lots that are on, you know, higher or drier ground. And the bedding oftentimes occurs off the edge of that high ground in some of that you know, more wet type areas or some of the islands surrounding it and so forth. And so it makes it a little bit tough to actually access from the backside. You might have to park along the side of the road, um, and you know, a non-parking lot type area, you might have to go, you know, well out of the way to be able to loop around from the backside, but oftentimes it can be worth it 
just to make sure that you're not number one, crossing those deer's paths on their way back from food to bedding, or number two, that you're, you know, not busting them out of their feeding areas as you're trying to access. There was a place that I hunted growing up that you had an access spot that was right next to a big private field. And basically if you came in there in the morning, you could pull into that parking lot and you could see deer's eyes in that field in the headlights. And you're immediately given, uh, those deer heads up that you're going to be in the woods. And sometimes we would still see and, uh, get on deer doing that. But what ended up being a lot more effective was actually not using that parking lot, parking a little bit further down the side of the road and making a longer, more difficult access through the marsh to get around the backside of where all those deer are going to be coming in, um, and be able to be much more in a surprise type position. Just make sure you're staying away from the food sources. Make sure you're staying away from those trails the deer are taking to get back to beds. And those things in and of themselves could help separate you from other people, right? If you're the one person who's doing that loop around the backside type strategy and everybody else is just kind of, you know, busting through the feeding areas on their way, you know, through the dark with their headlamps to get into their setups, then you could be, again, at a big advantage from the pressure perspective. Now, afternoon access, if you're in hill country, Access from the top can make more sense, especially if you have nice, you know, rising thermals. Uh, the key thing is to stay out of, you know, visual sight of the beds. And if you're using that access from the top, be smart about what deer could be, you know, what locations they could be bedding in to be able to keep tabs on you. If you have bottom access in hill country, you might find that there could be deer up on those points that are directly overlooking an access type area. Like let's say you have a a parking lot and a trail that goes winding up through the ravine to get to some, you know, field tops. You could have deer, you know, within a couple hundred yards of that actual parking lot that are just right on top of the, uh, those people basically, you know, getting those thermals going upwind and just kind of keeping a visual tab potentially too. So if you have the ability to get away from that type of an area, access from the top, you can probably be at a bigger advantage. Now, some of these areas also, they have the higher access spots, but they might still give deer opportunities to be at an advantageous position to be able to keep tabs on you. Let's say it's a, you know, a hilltop field type of access area, and there could be deer bedding on the far side of that field and a little drainage ditch that kind of feeds up into it. And they're able to stay right in that, uh, that little spot and be able to keep visual tabs on whether or not somebody comes in and actual par- actually parks there. And then they might just be able to dip right out of there or, you know, relocate if that is the case. So if you have the top access, it makes sense as long as you're staying out of sight. And if you only had the bottom access, what can oftentimes work is if you actually turn a bottom access into a top access, meaning let's say you have a certain particular spot that you're, you have in mind that you want to hunt, you might uh, climb up a, a point or a ravine that's say a quarter mile away from that actual spot, but you're definitely out of sight and you're not getting your thermals caught by the deer that you anticipate could be bedded off of that place that you're hunting. So you climb up the hill from your low access and you get up high and then you, you know, kind of cover ground laterally until you get close to that area where you actually want to set up. And then you kind of drop back down into your actual setup position. That was actually the setup uh, type strategy that we did on the, the public land challenge when I was hunting with uh, Aaron Warbritton in Minnesota on that very first uh, hunt that we did. And we ended up seeing, I think it was three deer uh, that evening in a, actually I guess four deer in a place that was totally, you know, new to the both of us. And we basically just accessed from several hundred yards 
further down the ridge system from the bottom because that's the only access that we had got up to the top and then just moved laterally and then dropped back down um, and were able to get on those deer they had no idea that we were there so in summary i guess just some rules of thumb as you get close to a setup spot really try and slow down and time your movement with the wind so that you can cut down in your noise especially if you have a lot of um, a lot of leaf litter on the, the ground that's making the access really hard to do in a quiet manner and also don't be afraid to take a longer more out of the way access if you really think that it's going to be ideal now obviously don't take a two mile access when you could use a quarter mile access if that quarter mile access would get you in there undetected anyway don't do it just because you can do it when it makes sense and then also don't be afraid to park away from the typical parking lots especially if they're very heavily used and then also especially this time of year go in and learn how the deer are potentially betting and monitoring those types of areas so they can use them to their advantage and then figure out how you can access from a different spot and be able to um, set up on those particular deer that are monitoring the other hunters. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby Boswell or myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.